I know this feels obvious, but we're witnessing a change in history. And it's not just the millions of protesters who are pouring into the street in support of Black Lives Matter. It's not just a generation-defining pandemic. We're also witnessing a change in history with a capital H. We're having conversations nationally and locally about how we recognize history and whose stories get told. Just last week, the Alabama Archives released a statement admitting that for a century, it fed the lost cause narrative of the Civil War and failed to collect narratives from Black Alabamians. We've all seen Confederate monuments, and a few others, toppled around the country. We've heard debates about Gone with the Wind and pancake syrups and popular TV shows. And it's all happening very quickly, and it may feel like a lot to absorb. But Dr. Hillary N. Green is the perfect voice to walk us through this moment. Welcome back to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today I am talking with Dr. Green about monuments, reconstruction, the legacy of minstrel culture, and a lot more. Dr. Green is an associate professor of history at the University of Alabama, and since 2015, she has hosted campus tours to contextualize many of the buildings on campus that are named for Confederates and Klansmen. Now, earlier this month, the University of Alabama removed a Confederate monument, a boulder, from the center of campus. We discussed what this action meant, and now what work still needs to be done. So, let's make history on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Hey, Dr. Hillary Green, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thank you for having me. This has to be an incredibly busy time for you. You are an expert in Reconstruction. You're an expert in how Black Americans remember the Civil War. You're an expert in monuments and kind of this lost cause mythology. And that seems to be a national and international conversation right now. We're seeing monuments be toppled all across the country uh, and also in in places like Liverpool, England. So I'm curious as to what your immediate reaction to all of this has been. My immediate reaction was, wow, it's interesting to be a part of this historical moment because this is, if you think about it, five years since Charleston, we started having these waves. And Charleston, we had our first wave. Charlottesville, we had a second. But there's something about this moment 2020, and I think it's the pandemic and the effects of disproportionately of people of color and class. I also think it's the political moment in many countries across the way and people not feeling their voices are being heard. And also, too, I think people now with questions of policing and different things and those power dynamics that were at the core of these monuments when they first came up, people are now responding like, physically responded by pulling things down. They're going through their governments. And I think it's the combination of all of that that makes this unique. So I call this the George Floyd COVID-19 wave that it's everything from lost cause to anything about white supremacy, indigenous rights and colonialism. People are affected by this in different ways and they're taken to the streets. Well, and you know, you've been at the University of Alabama since 2014, I believe. Yes. And I think in 2015, you started doing the hallowed ground tours, which did kind of contextualize and increase people's understanding on campus of a lot of the racist legacy that continues to dominate places like the University of Alabama. I believe that the building where your department is housed is named after a white supremacist. What can you tell me about UA as it stood five years ago and and the actions that UA is starting to take now to address some of that? 
Yeah, so I started doing this research because of a student, black male student in my class, January 2015, said slavery did not exist at the University of Alabama. So kind of question why we were talking about slavery in college campuses. And then I took the university tour and I could no longer fault the student. So there was no conversations going on. There was no way to educate the students of the slave past, but also the Boulder. Um, when Charleston happened and Charlottesville happened, I had people not even know that we had that UDC Boulder on our quad. They walked by every day and didn't see it. So it became a, this is, I can't have students in my class think slavery didn't exist and not see the <laughs> landscape. And then other students who are hyper aware who did not want to be at UA more. They were talking about transferring. So how to keep them there and invested and involved. So turning and learning this information, but talking about it, having those difficult conversations about it. So when I first started doing the tours and the research, I had maybe one or two people who had actually heard of the history. They had actually heard about the university apologizing for slavery in 2004. The majority had not. To now, we five years later, because of the tours, because of those conversations that UA's now removed the monuments, the two plaques on Gorgas Library and the Boulder, students who've taken the classes and the tours are using that language, that long history, like, wait, we're UA too. We matter. Our voices matter. And we are the future. We are living everything in the capstone. And that was never there in five years ago. But the other thing was, I would never have imagined five years ago when I started this, that UA would have taken down the boulder or <laughs> yeah. all I wanted to do was to make sure my students not come to my class thinking slavery did not exist. That's all I wanted. And to educate and start talking about what can we do new? How can we build this out? And that was it. And so for me, as someone being at UA and being a part of this history now, I'm just amazed at the speed. Because as a historian, five years is nothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I graduated from UA in 2010, so about five years before you started doing these tours. I remember seeing that boulder, the, the monument that they've removed on campus, on the quad, particularly on game weekends. I was one of those students who never read it. You know, I think UA is even kind of Disney-fied its desegregation story. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got the, the monument to Vivian Malone and James Hood that doesn't entirely tell the story about, you know, how they were traumatized on, on campus years later. I am kind of struck by the fact that you said a, a student first brought this to your attention. You know, just in the years since I've been on campus, I think of a lot of the changes that have been made. You, you talk about the five-year period since 2015, but, you know, whether it's the desegregation of the Greek system or the election of, you know, the first Black SGA president in I think it would have been 40, 50 years when Elliot Spillers was elected. A lot of the changes seem to be driven by the students and the resistance of the administration. The removal of the monument did happen when students weren't on campus, but I can't help but think they did it to anticipate what would happen when students got back to campus. Exactly. And I think it's telling uh, the petitions that came through. I looked at the names and they've been in my classes as graduate students and undergrads. So when I taught the Boulder, we left the classroom and we went outside to that rock and we're like, okay, you just read Karen Cox, Dixie Daughters. What would Karen Cox say about this? What, <laughs> you just learned all this history and we would be out there deconstructing the boulder. And for many, that would be the first time they had it, but now they had the language and the tools. So when I saw those petitions coming in and then the removal, I'm like, there are no students here, but yet this is gone. 
this has been a flashpoint. Other building names, like renaming Morgan Hall after Harper Lee was there when I was there. That didn't go anywhere. And that didn't end up happening, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I'm like, there's something about this moment and the fear of what would happen in the fall. And also, too, I think, too, some of those conversations that we've been having for five years helped this process easier, make it easier. Having those conversations, okay, what's next? What are some possibilities? If we removed, you add new. What do you do this? And my concern is, and I like how you said about the Disney fight of the civil rights past, that's another history that is not really told to students either. So we might need to start thinking about narratives. How do we communicate these narratives over time? That's not this congratulatory, hey, let's pat ourselves on the back, but really do that hard work of making this the inclusive space. And I think my concern is now with the monument coming down on UA and others is when I got there, I would hear a lot, and I, and I do still hear from some naysayers, well, we gave them a marker. And I'm like, well, who are the we and who are the they in this situation? My concern is now is we removed a marker. How does that culture of silence, how does that culture of erasing, even the good that UA has done, might seep back in. So it's one of those things that, and I also do not like Disney-fied narratives, so I will always resist <laughs> and be like, no, <laughs> let's talk about this space. <laughs> UA is not the only campus where this is happening, and it does seem like if we kind of did a comparison across, you know, just the SEC, for example, we can talk about the ACC in North Carolina and a few other places here in a minute, but let's start with the SEC. You know, the University of Mississippi, they have multifold problems that are all being addressed right now. Obviously, there's the state flag, which is the last remaining flag that has the stars and bars, the most recognizable Confederate flag. That is seemingly being debated in the legislature right now. You know, by the time this episode airs, maybe there's a two-flag solution. Who knows? But what's happening on campus is my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, they've said that they will remove the monument. But the controversy is that they might spend more money to create basically a, a pavilion, a plaza to that monument somewhere else on campus. It is a tone deaf answer <laughs> to the solution. And one of the things why it's tone deaf is creating a plaza and spending more money to another romanticized version of the lost cause. And I think the best statement came out recently over that wasn't just a visceral response to it, was that like, wait a minute, we never agreed to this. We didn't see this. So the transparency, the openness, that goodwill snuck up on even those who were willing to like, okay, it's moved. We can work with solutions. And it made the battle lines even more intense now. The other is though, spending more money for a neo-confederate, neo-lost cause plaza ignores even the basic demands of people like, can we no longer have this presence, this monument here? So they're building a new monument and they're actually updating the cemetery that was never in good shape by adding new stones, adding this. So when the history department said like, this even is changing the narrative of the lost cause that we had and creating a new lost cause narrative <laughs> for our campus. So how do you expect people to teach their students to come there and to attract students? And I think it's the removal and that and then the solution. The solution is going to cause the next round of debates on this campus. So I'll be very interested because it reminds me of UNC Chapel Hill with Silent Sam and how that happened. And I think University of Mississippi would be very key and looking 
what happened there within the past two years and like the vision, is this worth it? Is this amount of money here? Can we actually come up with a community-based solution that doesn't seem tone deaf, that actually listens and where the goodwill of people would have it because uh, it's moving to another place where it's another monument. How can we do this in a way that is not Disney, but and not also not create another lost cause monument, but also to recognize this moment because the protests are going to continue and increase. For those of us who are not terribly familiar with what happened with UNC and Silent Sam, I know that's where you got your doctorate. What was the controversy there and how did it resolve? So Silent Sam had a longer history. It was actually pulled down by students after the university failed to listen to their demands, started doing surveillance of students and others. And as an alum, I was a part of a movement to why not give money to the school (laughs) until this got resolved. But when the monument gets pulled down, the university puts in storage and then they said, well, we're going to create a museum for this. And we're going to create this multi-million dollar museum. We're also going to have all this money for security. And we're just like, well, that could have went to scholarships. That could have done this other thing. And then the lawsuit started to happen. Where even sports personalities of UNC's basketball team who are never vocal on race started talking. And what that monument meant and how it shaped. But they were like, if you build this, you will never get a cent from us and we will sue you. (laughs) And it became one of those flashpoints that now, after a lawsuit got settled, we realized that UDC never really owned it. Nope, we are not sure who owned it. But that's a lot of money that went to some legal suits over this monument. And it's still in storage. It has not gone back up. But the saga continues and it's still being waged. So I think the University of Mississippi should look to that. Are you willing to have a multi-year fight on your hands? (laughs) And is this monument worth it? And even the solution of a new plaza worth it? Well, you mentioned the UDC, and I guess they did not actually own Silent Sam. The United Daughters of the Confederacy are where a lot of these monuments originated. It's where a lot of this lost cause mythology was born. They built monuments, you know, in, in Birmingham and all around the South. Who were the United Daughters of the Confederacy and how does the uh, lost cause myth get tracked back to, you know, reconstruction and, and that area? Yeah, the UDC is the successor of the Ladies Memorial Association, which really has it starts right after the Civil War. This is women who are supporters of the Confederacy, but there's also women in the North. There are African-Americans who are tending to the wartime dead. These are women dedicated to one making sure that everyone has a headstone and they're preserving and taking care of those cemeteries. So they're in private spaces. But how it ties to Reconstruction is the success of Reconstruction. Having African-Americans go to school, having African-American politicians, and as Republican governments during Reconstruction are being removed and replaced by redemption, you also have to change the landscape and the cultural redemption. And this is where the LMAs that become the United Daughters of the Confederacy are important because this is the role of women in shaping the landscape by putting up monuments in public spaces to say, hey, African-Americans, you no longer belong. This is our history, our space, and this is the power structure. And then also, too, the UDC did textbooks. So they are looking at living monuments as the children of future generations, both white and black, to learn the version of the lost cause. They are also educating 
every child through the textbooks that now they control. So the textbook committees are controlled by the United Dogs of the Confederacy. They also sponsor um, scholarships. And the other thing we are talking about are these monuments, but their legacy and the scope of their work were more than these monuments. It was textbooks, school building names, holidays, and the like. And if it wasn't for the United Dogs of the Confederacy and the LMAs, we would not have these discussions. Because this is the work of women who purposely and strategically made this as their political statement to shape the South and to shape the remembrance of the Civil War that honored the Confederacy, that honored this lost cause, that made the men who fought into these valiant soldiers and did it in a way that had mass appeal that the reunions couldn't do, individual teaching couldn't do, but they made sure they went from the cradle to the grave. And that is why we are still talking about these monuments. And when you look at the role of the UDC in the first wave of the monument craze from 1880 to 1920, that is the work of that, those groups of women. Everything else has come since. And it's usually the children who are doing it. But the UDC made their mark on society. And in these debates, I find it's telling that very few people remember the women who were responsible for these monuments. So. We always say the UDC, Lost Cause monuments, but also Jim Crow era monuments. And it's that cultural backlash and redemption of Reconstruction. And it's why that period, because it's the period of lynching, it's the period of disenfranchisement. And when you overlay my students, every time I teach the monuments, it's usually after talking about lynching. And I show them the Equal Justice Initiative website with the lynching map. And then a couple lectures later, we're talking about the monuments. And I always have students who are like, well, my gosh, you could do a complete overlay. And you're seeing lynching and monuments going up at the same time. And those records going up at the same time. And with disenfranchisement, that's a part of that narrative, too. And I think that's why a lot of people are protesting today, because they're seeing that long legacy of the first Reconstruction now continuing the present, but also now with William Barber out of North Carolina and others calling for a third reconstruction that deals with policing, they're making those through lines in that long history in ways that I would never expect it other than those college campuses are learning this, but you're seeing it on the ground and this longer history being played out in the present. Coming up after the break, Hillary Green discusses how a woman from Boston became so interested in Southern history. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. As the novel coronavirus wreaks havoc in Alabama and across the world, these are the stories of the people seeking to survive the disease and its economic strain. I've been doing this 40 years. I bet I've fired five people in my entire life. And, you know, we're in the process of laying off hundreds of people. And I can tell you, that's as tough as anything we've ever done. A lot of us don't have health insurance. A lot of us don't have sick days. You can't collect unemployment when shows cancel. Everyone is worried. Everyone is tense. Everyone is concerned. I have a business that I cannot even run. For two months now, I've been closed. I have five employees. They keep asking me when we're going to reopen, and I don't know yet. I'm an optimistic guy, and, and I think that my group is smart enough and hardworking enough and kind enough to get us through this, whatever they throw at us. And, and that's certainly my hope. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a Pandemic. 
Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We spoke with Reverend Barber for an episode of this podcast last year, and you know he talked about during that period of Reconstruction, you had those fusion governments of African-American politicians who were put into the Reconstruction governments by the Republicans on the federal level and elected on, on the ground level because Black Americans' voting rates were obviously higher than they had ever been, but also higher than they would be a few decades later. When those redemption governments seize power through intimidation, through violence, and through voter fraud, and then during this period where you're talking about the UDC building these monuments, these redemption governments were also changing the constitutions themselves. I think the um, Birmingham's monument that was just taken down recently, I think the cornerstone was laid the same year of, of the 1901 constitution, right around that same time period. So a lot of this work was happening all at once. It also started to seep into popular culture in minstrelsy. And another major headline we've seen recently is that Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben and Mrs. Butterworth and some of these other minstrel icon brands that have somehow endured to 2020 are now changing. What was it about some of these Mammy characters and Jim Crow characters? Why were they so lucrative for the advertising business? It's that romanticized lost cause. And so the Mammy figure, heavyset woman who took care of the enslaver's children and then also, too, this is the era of blackface menstruality across the board. And I will have to say, blackface was national and international. It is not just a southern phenomenon. Churches performed blackface during the same era as this is going on cultural scene. It is culturally the art form of the time period. So when these advertisers are tapping into a popular culture manifestation and the mammy, that safe woman who's not hypersexual, but that comfort reminds of that past of when enslaved people and African-Americans were subservient. It erases those gains of reconstruction. And also too, people would buy it. People would buy the Aunt Jemima food, but then also buy the cookie jars and all this other stuff. So the consumption of these goods were so lucrative. And I find it's interesting that consumption and consumers and marketing, they will go wherever the market is. And as long as that market sustains it, you will see it uh, continue. And so as plantations and um, current tours are revised to include the African-American experience and being truthful about the history, now it's coming to firms like Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben because there's too much of a backlash and too many people willing not to buy it. They can't afford to have their product gone. So they will just in respond to those market demands as plantation houses and tours have adjusted to new markets of African-Americans and other people questioning the sanitized versions of the past and those that want to promote myths of that lost cause. And which is funny because when the other monuments that the UDC did and some of the other UDC monuments had that faithful mammy on the monuments themselves. They wanted to have a faithful mammy monument in DC. That myth is still prevalent, especially when you watch Gone with the Wind and all this other stuff. So there's something about that mass appeal that's still there. But now businesses are like, can we afford to have this? Can we afford to lose this market share? Do we need to be on the side of the times? And you brought up Gone with the Wind. That's another one that's in the news recently. Uh, and it does seem to be a, a business decision. You know, just a couple of months ago, HBO Max was advertising and using Gone with the Wind 
to promote its new service. And now it has announced that it is pulling Gone with the Wind and will add it back later with a disclaimer video that will air before what is already a uh, four-hour movie. So, <laughs> so if you're really insistent on watching Gone with the Wind, you'll have to dedicate a little bit more time to it. I guess I'm curious where you stand on this in terms of contextualizing, removing, or, you know, as some would argue, trusting a modern audience to watch Gone with the Wind and make their own decisions based off of it. And this is where I think contextualization matters. So I teach Gone with the Wind. I also teach Birth the Nation. I teach also Within Our Gates by uh, Oscar Michaud. So in the classroom, I can have these conversations and my students are firmly equipped with the language to talk about these films as historical cultural artifacts. But when you have that in the other one, Song of the South, <laughs> that mm-hmm. has been pulled. Which has been removed. It's completely basically. removed. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember that as a kid watching, I'm like, okay, this is a problem. <laughs> but I think one of the things is there's no one fits all solution. And in some communities, I would see removal is the best option. But in others, I think context can matter. It really depends mm-hmm. on the monument, the discussion, and what the object is. So if in this case, an add in an opening trailer film to the movie that's already super long, and I always have to break it up over a couple of lectures <laughs> just to get there. I'm okay with that because it was the best-selling film of its era. It had such a market share in the Terra House tours in architecture and stuff. So contextualization, I think, matters. And I think if they do that, I would be okay with that because I still think it should be taught. I still think people should have access to it, but give them enough language to equip with it. But other monuments and things, I'm like, please remove. Just like, there's, <laughs> there's nothing you can do to make this better and not cause people to have pain and trauma every single time you walk by it. And then there's some, you mentioned earlier that my office is in Manly Hall. I know Basil Manley Sr. is not happy to have the Department of Gender and Race Studies in a building named after him. And I go in every day like my diploma from UNC on the wall. We are good. (laughs) (laughs) So that one's okay because it basically subverts it. There's some subversion going on. So for me, it's there's not one all removed or others. And I think it's a lot more complicated. But whatever solution is, especially for monuments and communities deal with this it has to be the community that decides it can't be a top-down approach gone with the winds owned by a corporation they're going to make their decisions because they have bottom lines but the other ones are the messier conversations and i hope that people now when they saw hbo max and saying like oh why gone with the wind that they might actually listen to some people who hate that movie who refuse to watch that movie and try to understand why they don't like that movie or look at the original protest that happened at the time. So it could be a way to build conversation and discussion, but also ones that hopefully we should be having anyways. But I don't do HBO, so I'm like, so <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, I, ha- I can go to my school library and get the <laughs> Right, get your copy. Yeah. You know, there have been a number of slippery slope arguments that have been introduced, you know, as far back at least as 2015 when this, or one of the rounds of conversations started happening. You know, some of that's always seemed a little bit like it's in bad faith, certainly. However, you know, last week in San Francisco, protesters pulled down a monument to Ulysses S. Grant. He did own a slave. You know, there's there's no absolving that whatsoever. 
But the monuments built to icons like him, or even to a George Washington, for example, they do fuel an American mythology, but it's not the lost cause mythology. How do you as a historian separate those yeah. monuments? And so for me, I look at the intent of the monuments of when they went up. When are those errors going in? And so for me, Grant coming out of San Francisco, a lot of people, it wasn't so much the slavery as much. It was his settler colonialism and the Indian wars. And that, that really people were like, he's not a good person out West because of that history. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And the same thing with Theodore Roosevelt after Museum of Natural History. So like Theodore Roosevelt alone on his horse, as he did a lot of money for the museum, we can okay with this. It's that Native American and African American behind them when it's put up as a national scene of retrenchment in terms of Native Americans as well as African Americans. And so they're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have these people behind us <laughs> anymore. So for me, I always look at, is it the lost cause? Is it something with slavery mythology? Is it settler colonialism? What's that past? And I really try to listen to those who protest. And what are they questioning? What are they saying? And is this a way maybe if we have Ulysses S. Grant, can contextualization happen? Or they're just like, no. <laughs> or the Sand Creek Massacre that Eric Coleman talked about, having a monument to a massacre of Native Americans, probably not a good thing to have. So, <laughs> so the era coming up is there. So I always try to, when I teach, say it's not just this. And it's the great men myths that I'm not sure monuments are the right thing to do because all individuals are flawed. And I think what happens, and especially we're seeing with the other monuments in the Golden Gate area, those were individuals who had history with Native Americans and massacres that way. I'm like, oh, so if I could see their pain and trauma and why they're like, he has to go. At the same time, they wouldn't have the same resonance with a Confederate monument. Because that history is not personal. The place, it's the place of the monument. Those communities that have to engage with it affects how they talk about it. So I always emphasize the various areas, but how place matters and how individual communities dealing with that pain and trauma will shape them to do different things because of that monument or that past, because it's more real to them. And that American mythology might work at Monticello. It might work at other places because they've been having the conversations about slavery, but never about the other histories. So it's, as a historian, I like to say, it's always complicated. There's never a straight <laughs> history, but we can try to understand what this past in our present and why there is this engagement. You mentioned the intent of when the monuments were built mattering. Mm -hmm. You know, if we could jump back over to movies for a minute, yeah. there's a similar conversation that's happening right now about Tina Fey and 30 Rock and a decision to pull a few episodes that featured characters in blackface. I haven't seen the episodes myself, but my understanding is that the joke was making fun of people who think blackface is okay more so than making fun of blackface. That's a tightrope to walk, but, you know, the intent being the lampooning of racist versus the lampooning of race, does that nuance matter or is it too difficult to kind of figure out at this moment? The, the problem is it's, I haven't seen the episodes, uh, so, but it's satire and satire goes across that line. And I think one of the things or decisions there, they probably thought and had good intentions. It's the reception of it. 
And it, those reception of that, when I heard about that, I'm like, oh, I did one, did not know those episodes existed. So now I have to hunt them down. <laughs> <laughs> or same with like Tropic Thunder, where yeah. Robert Downey Jr. plays an actor who chooses to do blackface in order to play a role, yeah. but is played for satire. And same thing with Soul Man of the 1980s. So, right. <laughs> so you're just like, yeah. they don't age well. And so for me, it is whenever I have encountered those as an educator, I will teach that. I will bring it into the classroom because it will survive somewhere, YouTube, somewhere else, and bring that clip in like, okay, let's talk about this. But as a consumer and of there, I am glad that Tina Fey and the producers are thinking, maybe this was good here, but at this time, maybe it was in bad faith and we should not have done this. And so the fact that even this is the other thing with monuments and reception, it changes over time. And at this time, they were like, we never intended, but now we can see how this is a problem. Let us resolve this. That reflection. That's the part I would emphasize with my students and other communities. The fact that they're like, they're not static. They can too change. They can learn this history and they can readjust and make better decisions. That's a part of this legacy and history now that I will also emphasize the original episode, but also this reflection and what they did and say like, this is a period of time. Look how much has changed. What has facilitated this change? I'm curious, I believe you grew up in Boston. How did you come to dedicate your career and your field of study to to studying, you know, the Southern Reconstruction to Black memory of the Civil War? Honestly, family. My mother's family's from the other side of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. So Franklin County, Pennsylvania. So and then Hagerstown, Maryland, if you go that line there. And they were free people of color as early as I trace them back to 1820. They fought in the Civil War as free troops early on. Oh, wow. My dad's side of family is from the James Island, South Carolina, so the Gullin Low Country outside of Charleston. So, and then I grew up in Boston. So we always did the Civil Rights Trail. So the Shaw Memorial was always a factor of my childhood. But every summer we got in the car and we drove to Pennsylvania and we drove to South Carolina. And on family porches, I heard about Black history from in the family history where my dad's side of the family were enslaved, my mother's side were free. And then we always went to all the plantations, all Fort Sumter. And then I grew up at Gettysburg in the Battery. You have pictures of me from stroller up to 18. <laughs> <laughs> and so it allowed me to, one, understand my family roots because my parents were exposing me to communities they were important in their life and those alternate narratives and histories about the black experience from the civil war onwards to the civil rights movement and as the weird boston cousin who only came down twice a year <laughs> it helped me realize where i was coming from and with the civil war and slavery was the unifier that's why I really studied the Civil War and more so Reconstruction because slavery is hard even for me to talk about and understand. But I knew that because of Reconstruction, because of emancipation, that helped contribute to my parents' meeting, all this other stuff in this changed history. So I wanted to talk about freedom and what that looked like and the institutions that the churches I went to in Charleston and in Pennsylvania that had their time period from there. What was going on to process that? And then I can go back to Massachusetts, like, okay, we know post-abolition, racism's still here, but how do they have this abolitionist pass into this, all of this? So it allowed me to grow up and find my place and identity as someone from Boston with these two divergent roots. And as a historian, 
I'm just amazed of what was built by people coming up with nothing. And those institutions, those values and what freedom looked like and the hope that they had in spite of everything. And I'm like, I might need to tap into that. Who are these everyday men, women, and children who come in out of this moment and are like, we succeeded. We've done everything. Let's shape America to the way we want to do it. Let's shape our communities. And that, I think, is one of the things that keep, continues to me to go back to. How do they maintain that hope? They didn't know Jim Crow was coming, but yet they are fighting. They are living. They are creating meaningful lives and institutions, some of which I still see today. They were institutional builders in a way that I don't think we think about with Reconstruction. It's like Eric Foner talks about this as the second founding. Greg Down has a book called The Second American Revolution and Du Bois and others of Black Reconstruction. I'm like, these are institutional buildings to make America where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. These are the other founders. Why aren't we talking about them? So that's why I focus on this period and keep on coming back to this period. And memory falls into that because these are the ones who are seeing this retrenchment and they're fighting back for future generations. They're the ones who are the original civil rights activists. They're the ones, especially being at the University of Alabama and studying uh, the history of slavery at UA, I see those institutions created by former enslaved people who worked at UA in the community that I still see those churches and other things. And I see myself as that longer legacy at that place now being in Alabama. And I find that we need to know more about this period because if, when we do, we can see violence was there. These other things were there, but these were people who survived and built something that lasted. Well, and I think that, you know, so many white people, when they look back at some of this, not just white people, but predominantly white people, you know, they kind of frame it as, well, they didn't know better necessarily, but you know, as you're talking about, the true history was always there. You know, Ida B. Wells documented lynchings before Thomas Dixon glorified the Klansmen, and W.E.B. Du Bois documented Black Reconstruction before Margaret Mitchell published Gone with the Wind. And so this history that you're talking about, that legacy that was built, it's always been there. And, and hopefully, as we start continuing these conversations about who deserves monuments and, and who doesn't, maybe some of that true history will grab hold of the national consciousness. I hope so. I hope so. And say Richmond, I studied Richmond in my first book. And someone asked, like, what's your go there? I'm like, Maggie Lena Walker, who before she became famous, and I see her as a student in the Freeman schools who becomes an educator and then this famous person, John Mitchell Jr., who in 1890 criticized the monument in the Richmond planet. I'm like, he deserves a monument too. You should go back to Richmond because the people we could go here. But also, too, we forget about the power dynamics at play and whose history and who gets to shape history. The people at the time understood firmly what they were doing. In their dedication speech, they talk about we have to remove African-Americans from this consciousness because they're taking our power away. They're Mm -hmm. speaking these clear languages. So one of the things I always will say is when we look at this period, we need to look at the language of the time and what people said at the time and the like. And I think once we do that, it will also lead to the less of the romanticizing. And the other is African-Americans and others have always protested these spaces. Look at those voices too. And thanks to digital humanities and digitization, we can access these things for free now. So you can read Library of Congress site, Chronicling America, the Black newspapers who are commenting on these monuments. You can see the Library of Congress's website UA's Digital Humanities 
site for the library. These documents are now accessible. You might have to read 19th century handwriting though, but they <laughs> are accessible and we can read and see and demystify the narratives that were created because there's power in telling the story and telling the narrative. And we need to change the narrative to be more truer and inclusive of the what happened at the time. So multi-layered and not simply black and white. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Green. This was a pleasure. People can find your work online. They can also find a digital version of the Hallowed Grounds tour. Any last remarks? Thank you for having me. And this is a mo- as a historian, I'm so glad to be in this moment <laughs> and to write about this period of time. But there's some good books out there. There's a lot of great literature. If you're confused, read. There's a lot there. But listen develop empathy for those around you. And I think community-based solutions at the end will help us in this moment. But this is a particular moment at this time that I'm glad to be a witness to. Wonderful. Thanks so much. And that's all the time we have this week, folks. Thank you to Dr. Hillary in Green for her time. You can find her on Twitter at at HillaryGreen77. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It was produced and edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like our show, please consider subscribing, sharing it with your friends, and giving us a five-star review. And go ahead and follow Reckon on all of our social channels. And until next time, thanks for listening.